Well, we have begun a series, Cosmic Christmas. So we are working through the Gospel of John in its introduction, which tells the story of Jesus by going all the way back to the creation of all things. And so last week we talked about what is it to talk about God and time in such an unusual, weird universe that we live in. And so today we move over into a new topic, which is why is it we're always waiting for the end of the world? People of all time have had similar thoughts that you've had. Is the world about to end? It's a we can make a lot of great movies. People go out and see uh, movies like Armageddon and Deep Impact and these kinds of like survival movies. And there's perhaps good reason for why we're always wondering about is doomsday coming? It's because there's a lot of threats. I've got a list. This is a fun list of all the threats that we uh, are afraid of, perhaps. For some, we'll start with the more outlandish version of threats. For some, maybe your threats is like the movie Independence Day, of what if aliens came through and if they made it to us, their technology is a whole lot more advanced than us. And what would we do to stand against such technologically advanced beings? Um, but sometimes those beings that we're afraid of are not external to our planet. So there's plenty of movies about robots or AI getting too powerful, too strong, and taking over. Or maybe you like AMC's never-ending Walking Dead show, and those little bacteria that take over ants and make them into zombies, you're worried that they might progress and take humans into zombies. We've lived too really through uh, the disease dangers uh, through the pandemic, but there's always the worry of when's the next plague coming for us. Um, but some, some things are extravagant and you see them, but the threat just looms like a super volcano that could send up so much ash to change the entire climate and to make food disappear very short time. Or maybe we're watching for cosmic impacts. You don't have to think too hard about this imagination. All it does is on a night sky when you look up at the moon and you see that the moon has quite a bit of craters on it. Craters you can see with your eye. Like, oh, space can be dangerous. And it's actually quite, you know, amazing that in the last few year we've had um, NASA sending out the ability to test that we could land on, you know, a meteor, which is just crazy to imagine. Um, but it's that much of a threat that we are testing out how would we push meteors off course. Um, people were really concerned when the super collider was starting that maybe it'll create a mini black hole and what if that ate the whole planet? Because usually black holes are at a distance and you're not too scared about them. But what if we made one? What would we do? Um, for some, it's a long-term thing like the sun, which gives us so much great ability for life on the planet, but, but what if it misbehaved itself? And there's the long-term scale of, okay, it runs out of elements at some point in history and it grows and grows and engulfs the earth, and that doesn't sound great for the earth. But on a minor scale, it sends out little solar flares that make radiation problems for us, knock out satellites or electric grids. And an incredibly intense version of that is there's gamma ray bursts from stars. Uh, and I was looking at it. Uh, the gamma ray burst of a star exploding is comparable to 10 billion years of the, our sun's energy all in an instant moment. 
And so there's a potential one that's like 8,000 light years away. If you can imagine 8,000 years of light traveling. You know, it's pretty far away, but not that far in cosmic sense of things. Um, but if it were to fire in just the right direction, extinction. There's a lot of threats. And one of those threats is our own selves. Never more apparent than in the last hundred years with the invention of nuclear weapons where we realize we've created bombs big enough that, oh no, what if we destroy our planet? And we created enough arsenal that you're like, okay, well at this point we can destroy our entire planet, why are we still building more? Like, is there more damage than the entire planet that's necessary? And so when I was thinking about this, of like everyone's fears of the unknown, fears of the end of the world, I was like, you know, one of the benefits of a church with a long story is sometimes we have fun things of history. And so I brought some of them out on stage for us uh, today. We've got a fallout shelter in our basement in the Fellowship Hall. It's like halfway up a wall, there's a random small door, and a bunch of rations and supply kits um, from the 60s. And they're from the early 60s, but I in particular liked this box here, which these food rations came in, which was packaged the same month that JFK was assassinated, to give you any sort of sense of time and history. And so in that survival kit, one, it's by the Office of Civil Defense, and the logo already tells you this isn't from our current moment. But in it, these giant carbohydrate boxes, which I'm appreciative of because I think you might need like a can opener or something. And I was like, man, if this was too easy to open, there would be the threat that I'd have to try one in front of you. And, I, and since it's too sealed, we'll just let it be. But those canisters, they come in a box that's 75 pounds. It's a heavy box. And I don't think that they would be particularly like flavorful or enjoyable, that carbohydrate supply. It also came, though, with a medical kit where you get different kinds of eye drops and, and gauze and thermometers and all sorts of interesting medical supplies. Um, one of my favorites for you is this round tin here, which says sanitation supplies, which is its fancy way of saying that's your toilet. It comes with a plastic lining and some 1960s toilet paper at the bottom. And all of these supplies are very interesting, and it comes with a handy guide, which was helpful. And I found the guide interesting because the guide um, is not super uh, optimistic. Um, it says, okay, we, we want to let you know, yes, we know if there's nuclear fallout, not everybody's going to live. We're just going to name that out loud. But we need somebody to live. And so in it, it says these supplies are to help people survive 14 days, which gives you a sense of the scale of threat, where you're like, you're on your own, too much radiation, we're going to hope you can make it 14 days. If you can make it 14 days, maybe you're going to figure out the next 14, <laughs> the next month, the next year. Um, but in it, it talks about, you know, buildings can be rebuilt, but people can't. So we want to save as many people as possible. And I appreciated that in its language about um, this particular threat, it says that we're worried about radioactive fallout. And it says actually the only new part of that term is the second word, fallout. Radioactivity is older than man, as old as the cosmic rays and mineral deposits that have given off nuclear radiation for centuries, 
long unnoticed by man and of no general concern to him. The problem then is fallout, a modern threat of this nuclear age. But that's a pretty real threat to trying to create supplies, rations, um, for people to potentially try to survive. Uh, so if you're looking for, if it feels like it's the end of the world, the basement of the church is pretty nice and sturdy and uh, stocked with some supplies. But I was wondering, like, why is it that people are often so scared of the end of the world? Why is it always feeling like such a big threat uh, to us? And I think what, what's troubling for us is all too often we find that we are better at nightmares than daydreaming. Our biggest fears, our biggest scary nightmares seem to outweigh our daydreaming of the possibilities of hope and of life. And there's a little bit of reasons for that. I mean, our brain, when it gets afraid, it takes over. The amygdala says, no, rational thinking part of yourself. You don't get to make any decisions right now. I've got this. And that promotes a lot of safety. And let's be honest, safety is helpful. If you think about people who were safe or unsafe, over time, who's having more, uh, more life and kids and continuing on? Uh, people who made a lot of safe choices or people who said, oh, I don't, I don't mind that bear. Maybe I can go play with a bear. Maybe I'll go climb the mountain. And so the safer people tended to continue, and safety was rewarded. But it's not just that safety is what makes us feel so uh, important about thinking about the threats on the horizon. For some people, assuming doomsday is coming is validating, because you might feel out of control, like you have no power in the world. But if you know we're all going to die because of this, and it's coming very soon, it gives you a sense of kind of cosmic order. You understand the order of the universe and it makes you feel a little bit more comfortable. It provides you with predictability. There's a weird research study about people being tied to some electric shock. I don't want to be a part of this thing or know exactly how they got the data. But if you don't know when the electric shock is coming, you hate the experiment more. As soon as you know, I will know when this is going to happen, people stop caring as much about the shock. But it's the unpredictability of pain that makes it even worse for us. And so knowing, okay, I know the end is coming and it's coming at this time, is why so many people throughout the last 2,000 years, especially in Christian history, said, okay, Jesus is returning on this specific date. And then when it doesn't happen, they then change the date, change the date. But it's, part of that is, I need an answer because predictability helps me to stop worrying so much. Because what can you do? It's gonna be that date. There's another thing in us. Fear gives us some rushed feelings. We get amped up on it. Um, the kinds of chemicals for fear and happiness are somewhat related and somewhat confusing to our brain. That's why some people like horror movies or haunted houses of people like to get scared as long as they know they're not actually in danger. So just the right level of threat actually feels positive and hopeful and exciting to people because it gives them a rush. And for others, always expecting the end is right now, 
gives you the chance from worrying to change into goal-oriented actions. I'm going to prepare for it. If I build my shelter, if I, if I get my supplies together, I'm, I'm not thinking about the pain. I'm thinking about what checklist of things do I need to get done to prepare. And anybody who's checked something off a checklist knows it feels good to knock things off that to-do list. And so there's a lot of reasons that contribute to why we are all so drawn in to being afraid and imagining the end is coming. But I want to draw our attention to our text for today. I'm going to read for you the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And we're going to focus on verses 5 through 9, but since we're working our way through this prologue, I'm going to start at the beginning of the chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to that light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. The Word of God. I love the beauty of verse 5, that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. It's a simple phrase, that the darkness did not overcome the light, but one that we have a hard time fully believing Because the threats of this world seem so large that we think darkness is going to win. But what a defiant statement from the beginning to say that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome the light. And so when we think about Jesus' story, not just in this prologue, kind of big picture summary of Jesus' ministry, but we think about the life of Jesus. It is a story of the darkness not overcoming the light. When you think about King Herod, who hears that there's a potential successor to the throne, and instead of celebrating, ah, yes, the king is born in Bethlehem, decides I am going to kill every child to make sure nobody gets to challenge me for the throne. And despite his plans, Jesus and his family escape as refugees to Egypt, and the darkness did not overcome the light. When Jesus gives like one of his first public professions and his like first sermons, he's in a synagogue and they have him read an Isaiah scroll and he reads about uh, what's supposed to come in God's new creation and God's new kingdom about how the blind will see and all of these things. And Jesus reads this thing and says, hey, I want you to know that today these things are fulfilled. And people are like, blasphemer. And they says in the text that they want to kill him. And they reach for him, and he eludes their grasp, and he makes it out, and the darkness did not overcome the light. When Jesus' friend Lazarus dies, and his family and his village are in mourning, why weren't you here, Jesus? Jesus shows up, tells them, don't worry about the decaying, stinky smell that you expect in the tomb. Roll the tomb out, unravel the man, because the darkness will not overcome the light. When we see 
Roman authorities and religious leaders colluding to get rid of a potential Messiah. Not to just kill Jesus, but to mock him, to harm him, to to beat him, to shame him, to kill him. Jesus shows that the darkness does not overcome the light. Even at the cross, I love the imagery that says that the, the Roman soldier standing there goes, oh my God. I always love saying that because it's true in this version. Surely he was the son of God. The story of Jesus is the story that darkness does not overcome the light. But I think for most of us, if people were to take a record of our speech, of our lives, of our demeanor, they might struggle to see that our good news message is that the darkness doesn't overcome the light. For many of us, the message we share is, did you hear the next awful thing that's going on in the world? The next tragedy, the next, I can't believe this is happening, I can't believe what's coming next, it's all falling apart, the world's just always getting worse. For so many of us, we are not evangelists of the light, but sharing that darkness is present. And so, I love that this story that John begins us with says, the darkness does not overcome the light, and then it talks about a prophet, it talks about John the Baptist saying, what was his role in all of this? There was a man sent from God whose name was John, he came as a witness to testify to the light. I think for many of us, when you kind of take John's ministry and what we know about it from all the gospel stories, you might lean towards Maybe he's a doomsday prophet. There's plenty of reasons why you might say that. He's living outside the city. He's out in the wilderness where nobody's living. So he's talking about all the stuff going on everywhere else. He's dressed kind of funny. He's eating weird stuff. He's not eating much. It seems like he's waiting for God's coming judgment. And maybe he feels a little bit like the prophet Jonah. Jonah's one of my favorite stories. Jonah is supposed to go preach to a city of people that he does not like, and he goes the wrong direction. He goes the opposite way. And when God finally gets Jonah to the city he's supposed to preach to, he preaches the shortest sermon ever that just says, judgment is coming. No, here's what you're supposed to do about it. Just judgment is coming. And then he leaves the city to go pout and wait for God to bring fire down on them. And while he's gone, the whole city goes and repents and asks for forgiveness. And they're dressed in sackcloth saying, God, forgive us. And there's Jonah just upset about it. And when God says, you know, I love people. I love their animals too. What if I want to be merciful to them? Why shouldn't I care about these people? And Jonah's like, I knew this is what you were going to do. This is why I didn't want to come here, God. I knew you were merciful and forgiving. How dare you? Is that what John the Baptist is? Is he the prophet just longing for doomsday without longing for healing, for restoration? John tells us, There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as witness to testify to the light. There's a big difference between testifying to the darkness and testifying to the light. 
In a world where the threats are very obvious, very real, we need glimmers of light, of hope, of possibility. And for some of us in the season of Advent, we're waiting because we're like, okay, I, I want to see the fullness of this light. But I love that in the Gospels, John the Baptist writes to Jesus, and we get the little of this exchange. He writes to him and says, hey, are you the one that we're waiting for? And maybe he's kind of gone back and forth in his mind. He thought it was the right person, then he's not sure. But Luke tells us that Jesus writes back to John. He tells the people, go and tell John what you've seen and heard here. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with skin disease are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. This was not the story that there would someday be light, but the light was already in the world, and darkness was not going to overcome it. So how well are we going to be witnesses to light and not to darkness? And I think it's all about our vantage point. How do we see the world around us? There's an American novelist named Richard Bach who said, what the caterpillar calls the end of the world, the master calls a butterfly. I love that image. The cocoon might seem scary, but what if new creation is emerging from that thing? That's a very different way to walk towards potential darkness. It's, It's something that's going to be shed because the light is not going to be overcome by the darkness. My hope is that we stop telling people that the end is near, but instead start proclaiming to people that new beginning is here. Instead of focusing on the vantage point of what's ending, what's hurting, what's, what's coming to a conclusion, what if we made our message about what is to come? What new possibilities and new life might emerge in the darkness? And so... I I thought I would leave us with one visual. Most of us know that like darkness isn't a thing. Like it's the absence of light. But if you had to like create like what's the, what feels like the slight exception to the rule, it might be the black hole. Because the black hole, you see darkness and it's weird that you see darkness. Uh, And black holes are very interesting. They're a dying star that has collapsed in on itself, where um, how a star works is there's this fusion nuclear explosion happening all the time. And all of that force that's exploding outward is pushing back gravity because of all this mass that is crushing in on it. And so stars survive because they keep pushing away at enough rate that the gravity doesn't crush it. But at some point, the chemicals inside of it, it runs out, it starts making bigger chemicals and bigger chemicals, and the density changes, and and it all just folds in on itself so that it's this just almost infinitely dense space where not even light can escape from it. And that might feel scary because if light can't escape for it, it, it feels like light loses in the story. And so the only way you see these black holes is as they are absorbing all of this matter and light, we see these accretion disks, which is the fancy way of saying like the spirally glow that's going around the black holes. And so we see the light around it, but we can't see it once it goes past the event horizon of the black hole. And that felt like the end of the story, and 
most of you probably know the name Stephen Hawking, who passed away a few years ago, the theoretical physicist. Uh, he wrote a paper in the 70s which caused a giant stir and eventually kind of won the day, which was he created um, this paper about what became known as Hawking radiation, which was his interesting mathematical model that black holes actually are slowly evaporating, that they don't actually win out, that they will eventually collapse and be gone. And there's a really weird science to this. Um, the, the vacuum of space is not actually a vacuum, it's weird. Um, there's all these kind of, these tiny particles that usually cancel each other out, maybe positive and negative charge. They just spontaneously happen in the universe and then they knock each other out, they disappear. Or matter, antimatter. Well, what's weird is if they happen at the edge of a black hole, one of them gets, a, gets consumed and the other one makes it free. And somehow it robs the black hole of a little bit of mass. And I mean a little bit. Because the scale of which this black hole dies is really un, unimaginable to our brains. Um, there's different size black holes, so there's some that die very quickly. But the ones like at the center of the Andromeda galaxy die at 10 to the 100th scale of time, uh, which is a Google, not Google spelled the way that Google is. But the number of Google makes no sense to my mind, and I don't think to any of our minds, because it is a 10 with 100 zeros after it. And number scale, so it's not like, oh, if a, you know, if a billion's a football field, how many football, like each number set needs a bunch of the earlier number set. It just keeps growing and growing and growing. But even what seems like an enormity of time, eventually the black hole explodes in a gamma ray blast of tons and tons of light and energy because even the black hole couldn't hold all of the light in and eventually loses out. Not on our usual time scales, but darkness does not overcome the light. And so when I think about us and our walk of faith, some of us might be living our lives as black holes. You know the person, if you, you might be the person, but you might also know a person that every time you're around them, it feels like all of the negativity, all of the criticism, all of the gloom is just swirling and swirling and there's no light left. The darkness seems to be winning. And the hope is, is that each of us, even if we are living that life, that we can say yes to God because God and light are not overcome by darkness. And so what if we were to say yes to God and say, God, just remove from me this layer of gloom and doom. Let me shine your light in the world. May we be people who celebrate light and not darkness. May we be people who are not oblivious to the fact that darkness seems scary, but who celebrate the beauty of the light that is not overcome. May we be people of hope and not fear, May we be people who see the shiny stars of God's glimmering light in those around us. May we have hands and feet to cultivate the soil of new creation. May we praise God because darkness does not overcome the light. Let us rest in that hope and that beautiful vision that darkness does not win. Would you pray with me? 
Lord God, we ask that you might transform us from the inside out, that we might have eyes to see your glorious creation, that we might have eyes to see where you are transforming life and light from darkness all around us. Lord, let us not be distracted by the threats on the horizon as much as we are fixated on your love, your goodness, and your hope. Lord, I ask that for any of us who have put up shells and exterior walls and armor that is trying to block out the light of your love in us, Lord, let those things come crumbling down. Let them explode into new life and possibility and hope. Lord, we long to see your light in this world even more clearly, even more abundantly. May your light keep shining brighter and brighter, and may we testify to it today. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.